It's always a great blessing to be able to proclaim the Word of God. It was interesting when I first started in ministry, you tend to follow the example that you have been given. And so one of the things that had been exemplified before me was that there was a certain calendar that it was probably a really good idea to respect. And so, for example, on this first Sunday of the year, you would be looking at, okay, we're going to set the stage for the whole year. We're, we're, it's a new year, and so I need to be tied to the calendar, so I need to go to a passage of Scripture where I can kind of set that all up and hopefully establish what the year ought to look like. And then following that, you know, you had the, the next really big one was Resurrection Sunday. I prefer to call it that as opposed to Easter Sunday, but it's just me. But you always had to have at least one message on crucifixion and another message on the resurrection about that time of year. And by the way, as I say this, don't get the idea that I'm saying that's wrong because I'm not saying it's wrong. That's every pastor's determination to make. And then, then the one you really didn't want to miss, though, was Mother's Day. You didn't miss Mother's Day. You, you preached a Mother's Day sermon. And then, not long after that, was Father's Day. Now, I did discover this. After a few years of having done that, and before I decided I'm going to break free from that, uh, I looked at my Mother's Day sermons, and then I looked at my Father's Day sermons. And you might be surprised and might not be surprised to find that I was really nice to the mothers. And I was constantly preaching, young people, you need to respect your mom, you need to look up to your mom, you need to love your mom, all of those kind of things. And then that would come to Father's Day and I ripped the hide off of dads. <laughs> Maybe it was because I needed the hide ripped off of me as a dad, I don't know. But it really was, there was a big discrepancy. I was so nice to the moms and I was so hard on the dads. And dads came out looking like if you looked at my sermons, they could never do anything right. And some pastors then on, on the 4th of July or around the 4th of July, they had to preach something that dealt with you know, politics. or uh, And it's fine to thank God for the freedoms that we have in our land and, and so forth, but you know, then Thanksgiving and then Christmas. Christmas, you had to do at least a four-part series in Christmas time. Have you noticed something that doesn't happen here? I don't know if it ever did, but it hasn't happened since I've been here. No less a great Bible preacher than David Martin Lloyd-Jones refused to be tied to the calendar. And so, for example, I have in my library his sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. He preached 63 consecutive Sunday mornings from the Sermon on the Mount. If Martin Lloyd-Jones was anything, he was thorough. His commentaries, which are a compilation of his sermons on the book of Ephesians, cover eight volumes. It takes up about that much room in my library. And so what we have done... And by the way, I was asked to preach about three weeks ago, and then this, this rare thing that nobody knows anything about called COVID uh, made its ugly appearance in our home, and um, I was unable to do so. In fact, I might have passed out before I finished the sermon, 
even if I wouldn't spread the disease. So um, that just didn't work. And I had looked at this, and I knew that Brother Damon was not going to be preaching a Christmas sermon, and I thought, well, maybe I should just do that. And then it's after Christmas now, and so what do you do? Well, I realized that the sermon that I was going to preach then would be a really good one to set the tone for the year ahead as well. There is something to be said for the Word of God is always appropriate. That it is never out of style. And so I'd like to take you in the Word of God this morning to 1 John chapter 1. If you'd stand with me as we read through this passage. We're going to focus our attention on the second verse of this passage, but I want to read the entire chapter as we begin this morning. The Apostle John says as he begins his first biblical letter, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we approach the truth of your word this morning, may our eyes be focused upon Jesus Christ, who was manifested in flesh. May we learn of him and know him and speak of him. And may we worship him. We pray, Father, that our minds, our thoughts would be concentrated on the truths before us. For in these truths, we find the greatest blessings that have ever come upon man, the only hope for eternal life. And so, Lord, we ask that the Spirit of God would take the word and apply the word to every heart that we would honor Christ as we speak forth these truths today. It is for his sake and his glory that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. You can be seated.
Have you ever thought about the fact that the thing that you're most eager to say tends to reveal what you're most excited about? What you're eager to do reveals what you're the most enthusiastic about. And so I ask as we begin the message this morning, are you excited about worshiping the Lord? It was interesting, I was asked if there were any songs that I would like to have sung this morning, and I didn't pick any of them. I said, I'll just leave that to you. And, and um, I can make the argument that every one of the songs emphasize something about worship. Which is a reminder that God is providentially in charge of everything that's going on. But I ask, are you excited about worshiping the Lord? Can you say with King David, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness? Can you say that? Are you enthusiastic about serving the Lord? Service and worship are intricately woven together throughout the Scriptures. The psalmist said in Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. That's worship. And then he turns around and says, serve the Lord with gladness. And then he finishes those two verses out by saying, come into his presence with singing. You probably will not serve well if you do not worship well. And neither will I. So that we might worship and serve the Lord with zeal and joy is my prayer. Let me turn your attention to the second verse of 1 John chapter 1 where the apostle reveals that he is preeminently excited about honoring Christ and that he is most interested in serving his Lord. He desires that the minds and hearts of the people to whom he writes will be focused on the Lord Jesus. And therefore he says, beginning in verse 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. How do you approach the Lord Jesus? And how should you approach Him? Do you and I come before Him with the worshiping hearts and minds of the people that we see often in the Scriptures? Do you take your worship as seriously as you should? And do I? Consider what the Bible says about a proper approach to God. I'm going to read through several passages of Scripture here. Solomon said this concerning coming before God in Psalm 72, verse 11. 
May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. In 1 Kings 8, 5, the same Israelite king, Solomon, is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And he said, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the Ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. They just gave up. They were sacrificing so many animals in worship of God they, get, they just gave up trying to count. Prophet Nahum said, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Micah gives this instruction on approaching God. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's several passages from the Old Testament. Well, what does it say in the New? Well, and in fact, what, what are we going to do when we get to eternity? What is heaven going to be like? And that's already been mentioned a little bit this morning. Revelation 4. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by, you, by Your will they existed and were created. And then in chapter 5, and they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We worship Him because He is worthy of that. And that pattern of worshiping God and of the Lamb in heaven continues throughout the book of Revelation and it will continue throughout eternity. 
And that brings us to 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, where it will be good to realize that John's words flow from a heart that was not waiting until he saw Jesus in heaven to begin worshiping him. His words are filled with passion. Passion concerning the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And so too should your words and my words be filled with passion for Christ and for His glory. And so as we approach what is said of Christ here, I implore you to, to shut out the cares of the world for a while. To come away from the electronic devices that so often occupy our time. To leave off the thoughts of what you're going to do for the rest of the day or what plans need to be made for the week ahead and focus upon Christ and His Word. Let us worship this One of whom we hear as we look at this passage. John begins the second verse of this letter with the phrase, the life was made manifest. The verse is really a parenthesis in John's thinking. And it may be set off that way in your Bibles with a dash before and a dash afterwards. The design is to explain further this whole idea of the Word of Life that has so consumed John almost from the very beginning of the time that he met Christ. Jesus was made manifest. In other words, John speaks here of the incarnation of Christ. When we celebrate Christmas, we're really not just celebrating the birth of a baby in a manger. We're celebrating the incarnation, the Son of God made flesh, dwelling among us. It's interesting that twice in this verse, the apostle speaks of Jesus having been made manifest, the beginning and the end. Now, why would John so emphasize that reality? Well, first, he emphasized the real and actual incarnation of Jesus in order to counter the error that the early Gnostics were starting to teach in the church. We'll say more about that in just a little bit. But all three of John's epistles deal with error, theological error that is coming into the church. And so John begins by saying the incarnation is true. Jesus Christ was made manifest. He wasn't simply conceived. He wasn't simply born. He was made manifest. One writer said the trouble which first John seeks to combat did not come from men who were out to destroy the Christian faith. It came from men who thought they were improving the Christian faith. Keep that in mind as I finish this quotation. It came from men whose aim was to make Christianity intellectually acceptable. You ever hear anything like that? He goes on to say, it came from men who knew the intellectual tendencies and currents of of the day and who wish to express Christianity in terms of these current philosophical ideas. It came from men who felt that the time had come for Christianity to come to terms with secular philosophy and with contemporary thought. That was written, by the way, some 100 and 
40 or 50 years ago. It sounds like it could have been written today. Because the same problem exists in our current generation. Some from within the church seemingly become embarrassed by the miraculous aspects of Scripture and of the life of Christ. They fear that if we teach the virgin birth and the incarnation and the miraculous works, the bodily resurrection of Christ, that the world will think that the church is being silly and unscientific. And they're unwilling to bear the reproach of Christ before a sin-filled, rebellious world. The Gnostics were seeking to present a Christ and a Christianity that was acceptable to the world. How often are we told something similar in our day? I can remember hearing people say, this was big when I was early in my ministry and, and was working with young people and there was uh, this thing called Group Magazine. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Group Magazine or not, but I started calling it Groupie Magazine. Uh, it was awful. One of the things it said was, if you're teaching teenagers and you ask them a question and somebody answers it wrong, don't ever tell them they answered it wrong. Try to find a way to say, well, that's an interesting idea and, and, and everything, and work around Robin Hood's barn some way, but don't ever tell somebody they're wrong. Well, where does that end? Where does that end? If some teenager answers a question wrong and, and in essence denies the virgin birth, you just say, well, that's an interesting thought and move on. It didn't take me very long to decide group magazine was not worth very much to me. And so I asked them to quit sending it. But we're trying to make Christianity acceptable. We get rid of the miraculous. And we try to present even the gospel sometimes without presenting the bad news that the reason the gospel is needed and the reason that Christ had to come and die is because we are sinful and guilty before God. And if we touch on it at all, we touch on it so lightly that we, that we almost don't say anything. I can remember, and, and my background, and many of you know this as we've talked and discussed things through the year and a half or so that we've been here, my background is out of a very fundamental, fundamentalistic, very rigid background, but also an extremely high-intensity push for evangelism. And we would have revivals in the fall and the winter, or fall and spring, every year. And when I was younger, those were five, six, seven-day events, and it got down until it was three-day events. But, but we had them all the time, and, and someone would come in and speak. And I can remember a man named Bill Rice, Bill Rice III. Some of you may have heard of him. He was talking about his dad, who did revival work for some years, preached you know, week-long, two-week-long meetings. And, and really two week long meetings most of the time when he was preaching. 
And he told us this, and I thought this was interesting. His dad would come in and start on a Monday night. And this was a place where, the, this was a style of ministry where invitations were given all the time and things, but he would come in and he would start on either Sunday night or Monday night. And he would preach until Friday before he ever gave an invitation. And he would do nothing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, but say, you were a sinner condemned by God. Because he knew that until people were really under conviction from the Holy Spirit, they, they didn't need a Savior. Through the years, it has come to my attention, or at least I've come to believe, that we're afraid to allow anyone to get under conviction. We wouldn't want anyone to feel bad. But if you don't know something's wrong, you'll never go to someone who can give you the cure. And if you never know that your heart is sinful and evil and you are separate from God because of that, then you never have a need for a Redeemer. You never have a need for a Savior. So we're trying to intellectually improve this thing. We're trying to make people feel good and still get them to Christ. When what we really need to do is preach the Word in season and out of season. Which includes reproving and rebuking at times as well as exhorting to right behaviors. We need to preach Christ and lift Him up high. And so that's one reason why John emphasized the incarnation that He was made manifest. But a second reason is this. He wanted his readers to realize that in Christ we have a great revelation of God. The Greek word used here is phanerao. It means to reveal or to make visible that which could be seen in no other way. The emphasis is upon the fact that God, who was under no obligation to do this, chose to reveal Himself to mankind in the person of Jesus Christ. And what a privilege it is to today to know Him. What a privilege it would have been at that time to walk with Him and to hear His words and to see His miraculous works. When we come before Him today and when we read the Word and when we hear the Word preached and when we come together as a congregation, I ask us very simply, do we come into His presence in awe? Or do we come with double-mindedness? Do you focus on Him or are you distracted by the cares and pleasures of the world? God has graciously revealed Himself to us in His Son. And it is for you and me to honor His Son for such a grace. Now John emphasizes three things about the Incarnation in this verse. The first is this, Jesus is life. Notice the verse, the life was manifested. We are reminded here of His words to the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Later in the verse, John assures us that this life is eternal. Following the fall, 
people had no ability to get back to God. In fact, that God is distant is clearly taught in Scripture. He is above us. He is holy, so much so that we can do no righteousness that can bridge the gap between God and us. According to Robert Yarborough, one of the really good commentators on the letters of John, he said the momentousness of what John relates is implicit in his claim that he testifies and reports the eternal life that was with the Father. In the religious tradition of both the Old Testament and New Testament peoples, a key assertion is the transcendence of God. That means He is above us, beyond us. But with God's loftiness, separateness, and uniqueness, the problem arises as to how sinful humans may connect with Him. The first John's opening verses declare that the life, Jesus Christ, who is the substance of His discourse, has an origin with the Father. Given the historical appearance of Christ, John sees the transcendence problem as overcome and Jesus set off as unique among humans. Jesus Christ is that bridge between sinful man and holy God. With the coming of the Lord Jesus, the God who had been considered to be distance made himself imminent. In Jesus, God came close. In Him, the author and source of life came near. Now in the Old Testament, God had come to His people, but His presence was represented by the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark was kept behind the veil in the tabernacle and then in the temple. In Christ, the presence of God became visible in the person, Jesus. Perhaps we should recall the words of the Apostle John that introduced his gospel. It's interesting how similar John 1 and 1 John 1 really are. 18 of the greatest verses in Scripture. In fact, if you want to know what the Gospel of John is about, the whole thing, read the first 18 verses. The rest, of the, the rest of the Gospel is a commentary helping us understand what the first, team, first 18 verses contain. Here's what John said. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through Him and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. 
The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. He was made manifest. He was made manifest and He is life. He is life. The life that was lost by man in his fall was made available in the Son. To teach otherwise is heresy that results and even demands hell as its end. Would you have life? Then come to Christ. In Him is life and only in Him. Come to Christ. A second emphasis of John here is that Jesus is real. The life was made manifest. The apostle speaks of the fact that he and the other apostles had seen him. And again, the heresy impacting the church denied the reality of the incarnation. But John and the other apostles had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew the incarnation was true, that it was real. He had a human body. He did become a man so that he could die for sinful men. He was able to be perfect, a perfect sacrifice because he was truly human. And none of us understands the fact that Jesus was truly God and truly man, unified, and yet humanity did not taint deity nor deity humanity. The particular heresy that John was addressing was an incipient form of Gnosticism. And it would deny the Incarnation. It took on two forms, both of which were likely impacting the churches to which John wrote. All forms of what would become Gnosticism denied the Incarnation, but not all of them denied it in the same way. And so the two primary ways that Jesus' Incarnation was denied are referred to, referred to as docetism and Serinthianism. That's not Corinthianism, that's Serinthianism. Of docetism, one commentator said, in the early church, this refusal to admit the reality of the Incarnation took, broadly speaking, two forms. He's going to mention docetism. That's the one I want to read to you. He said in its most radical and wholesale form, it is called docetism. The docetists taught that Jesus only seemed to have a body. And John, in an extra-biblical treatise known as the Acts of John, is made to say that when Jesus walked, he never left any footprint upon the ground. In other words, to the docetist, Jesus was a phantom. He was not truly a man. He only appeared to be a man. 
After all, since the Gnostics believed that all matter is evil, Jesus the Christ could not even be a lesser deity and actually have taken upon himself a material body. Now, if you think about that for just a little while, it doesn't take you very long to get to the realization that if he was a phantom, he could not have said to Thomas, at least in honesty, to place his fingers in the print of the nails and thrust his fist into his side following his resurrection from the dead. But docetism denied that Christ had a physical body. The second form of early Gnosticism called Serinthianism, after its founder, a man named Serinthus, denied that he was truly God. Docetism denied that he was truly man. Serinthianism denied that he was truly God. Kistemacher, another great commentator, quoting the ancient church father Arrhenius, said this, Arrhenius says, Serinthus, a man who was educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians, taught that the world was not made by the primary God, but by a certain power far separated from him, and at a distance from that principality who is supreme over the universe, and, and ignorant of him who is above all. He represented Jesus as not having been born of a virgin, but as being the son of Joseph and Mary according to the ordinary course of human generation, while he nevertheless was more righteous, prudent, and wise than other men. Moreover, after his baptism, Christ descended upon him in the form of a dove from the supreme ruler, and that then he proclaimed the unknown father and performed miracles. But at last Christ departed from Jesus and that then Jesus suffered and rose again while Christ remained impassable inasmuch as he was a spiritual being. Now let me kind of unfold some of that for us by asking what's at stake in such a teaching. Many of you have already gone there, I'm sure. First, Serenthus denied the miracle of the virgin conception and birth of Christ. In other words, he denied the incarnation of the God-man. Second, this teaching denies the clear instruction of Matthew's Gospel that at the baptism of Christ, it was not the Christ who came upon Jesus, but the Spirit who came upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And so it's really an attack on the veracity of the Scriptures as well as an attack on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. And third, this is a denial of the atoning work that is, the propitiatory sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He denies that. Serenthus was teaching that God could not suffer. And so for him, the Christ Spirit had to leave the body of Jesus before he could suffer. Other errors could be considered, but these three surely assure us that this leads to a false gospel. Or no gospel at all. These teachings stood in direct contradiction to much of what is taught in Scripture. And Serenthus then falls under the condemnation of Paul in the book of Galatians. He is to be accursed for his false gospel. If you do not have a Christ who is truly God and truly man, you do not have a Redeemer. And you do not have a gospel. 
And that was the issue in the early church. John, as you write this, and, and you look at 2 John, and he said if somebody, you know, if some, some traveling evangelist, so to speak, somebody that's uh, promoting religion, if that person comes to your door, knocks at your door, and wants to talk to you, do not wish that person Godspeed. It was these people that he was talking about who were perverting the person of Christ and the Gospel of Christ. And so it leads me to this. The argument can be made that a refusal to discern, especially in the areas of vital doctrine, is among the most unloving things in all the world to do. If you're not willing to discern, you're not loving people. If we do not discern even the most important things, the gospel itself disappears. And thus souls that should have been hearing the truth will not hear it. As it is unloving to fail to properly discipline a child, so it is unloving to fail to discern truth from error and right from wrong. The Apostle John discerns the truth and he goes after the error by promoting the truth. All three of his letters call for discernment. A third emphasis that can be found in this verse concerning the Incarnation is this. Jesus is from above. He was with the Father. And that is a clear indication that He was and is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now remember that the early Gnostics taught that Jesus wasn't truly man. And beyond that, as the heresy developed, the teaching became that no good God would have created matter, material things. And therefore, Jesus could not have had a material body, but even more, He could not have been the Creator if indeed He was the good God. Think about the amazing fact that this one who came to earth was with the Father. Paul talked about in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself. That's the kenosis. He emptied himself. Now there's a lot of error that is associated with that verse. But you can't get around the fact that he in some manner emptied himself. Certainly His glory was veiled, right? When He revealed His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, even there He didn't reveal the fullness of His glory because if He would have, the disciples who were there would have died. Moses couldn't even see the fullness of God's glory because God said, if I reveal to you the fullness of My glory, you'll die. Christ left that. What we focus on so often is the incarnational glory of Christ, which is not wrong to do, but we sometimes forget that He prayed that God would restore to Him the glory that He had before He came, and God did so. So that when John sees Him in the book of Revelation, he fears for his life. By the way, this was John. 
in some ways presented as the most intimate disciple of Christ. The one who sat or, or reclined in a manner that he could lay his head back on Jesus' chest and ask which one was the one who would betray Christ. The one who referred to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. I heard a man say one time, you know, when you can refer your, to yourself by your own name or you can refer to yourself as the disciple who's, who Jesus loved, why would you refer to yourself by your own name? What a privilege that Christ loves us. All of us who are His. We sometimes forget that yes, indeed, He is glorious God from all eternity. And this God came to earth and revealed deity to man. Samuel Pierce. I uh, tell a little story here. Um, several years ago, Michelle and I had driven down to uh, Garden City Beach, South Carolina. We like to go, if we ever do go, in October because the crowds are gone. We don't, don't have to worry about the crowds. Uh, it's still warm normally. You can get out and walk up and down the beach, and I like to look for shark's teeth. Um, I don't want to look for them up too close and personal if they're still attached, but you know how that is. And, um, and so we were coming back, and we stopped and went to the bookstore on the campus at Bob Jones University, and I was just looking around. And, and uh, my wife will tell you that the only places where she can go shopping with me and I'm not chomping at the big to get out immediately is a, a bookstore that actually has quality Bible-based whatever books in it or best prose or cabellas or someplace like that. You know, I, can, I can go there. Otherwise, it's in and out and I'm done. But I ran into a book by a man named Samuel Pierce. Pierce lived in the 1800s and pastored. And it was his commentary on 1 John. And again, it was a compilation of his sermons on 1 John. If you ever think anyone here goes slow, keep in mind, there are slower individuals out there. Samuel Pierce preached 93 sermons from 1 John. And he didn't just repeat himself. By God's grace, I, I managed to get through the entire book. It was wonderful. I, I didn't agree with everything that Pierce believed eschatologically primarily, but um, it, it was an amazing read. Here's what he said. In Christ, in Him, all the essential glory of the Godhead shines forth. Think about that. In Christ, all the essential glory of the Godhead shines forth. He went on to say this, the second person in the essence was with His own will and the will of the Father and the Spirit predestined into creature being and existence. In conjunction with this, He was conceived and brought forth in the vast and eternal designs, counsels, purposes, and will of all the persons in the Godhead before the foundation of the world was laid. 
He concluded some of his remarks in this particular, on this particular verse by saying, these are the deep things of God. The knowledge of the same will be our food in heaven. Our feast throughout the ages of eternity. I could wish this to be attended unto and thought deeply on which was with the Father and was manifested in the flesh in the fullness of time. I love that. The knowledge of the same will be our food in heaven. We will be nourished on the greatness and magnitude of the glory of the one who was made manifest for forever. In light of the wondrous person of Christ, both prior to and in his carnation, Pierce implores believers to meditation and worship. Are you really worshiping Christ? I ask myself that question. Now let's move away for just the last few minutes here from the incarnation. And I want us to look at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is seen in this verse as well. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. You say, where do you get inspiration from that? Well, Jesus had taught His disciples of the Holy Spirit's ministry in their lives and promised that they would be blessed with this work of the Holy Spirit that resulted in the Word of God in the New Testament. Our Lord said this to them, These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We have seen. And we declare it. How did they do that? Because the Holy Spirit brought all of it back to their remembrance. That's how. The promise made to the apostles applies primarily to them, certainly, but the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit is given to us as well. The apostles were given the Word, but the Holy Spirit illumines us so that we can read and understand the Word. The apostles would lay the foundation upon which the church of all subsequent generations would be built. Again, Pierce said, the church is said to be built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Their peculiar blessing was to see Christ in the flesh, to know Him personally, and so to converse with Him as to be fully persuaded that He was the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world these lived when Christ made good His promise of sending down the Holy Spirit, and they were hereby endued with power from on high. They received no part of their knowledge of Christ from the church, but the church received the whole from them. He went on to say that the apostolic writings are the foundation of our faith. By them it is we are led through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost 
into that knowledge of Christ, which is life eternal. The apostles had revealed to them the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Even though they saw Him close up and personal, it was the Spirit who gave them eyes to truly see, and such is the case in every age. Even while Christ was still alive, Jesus made it clear to Peter following His great confession in Matthew 16 that it was the Spirit of God who had revealed this to him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And He would do that through the Holy Spirit. Now, it's at this point that I would like to go down a rather lengthy rabbit trail. I don't know if any of you are thinking about why, but remember, every epistle that John wrote, and really pretty much every epistle in Scripture was written to deal with a problem that had developed in the church. And so they're all dealing with, we need to discern I'm just going to throw out about a 10 second little deal here and then you can take it from there. We're living in a day when one of the great attacks on the church is the idea that we go get along someplace and God gives us new, fresh revelation and talks to us personally from somewhere other than the scriptures themselves. I've heard some of what has developed out of that and some of it is as bad a heresy as the Docetists and the Serenthians. And it certainly did not come from Christ. Like I said, I'd like to take about a 20-minute tour there, but we better not. Some of your stomachs will be glad for that. You will truly see Christ when the Holy Spirit gives you true spiritual vision and that from the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God or the Word of Christ. I pray that you and I will see. We talk about the year ahead that we will see Christ. And we will worship Christ. That brings me to one final emphasis, and that's the instruction of the apostles. The incarnation of Christ, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the instruction of the apostles. And I know I alliterate things too much. Let's begin with the text itself as we note this instruction of the apostles. And here we examine the testimonies of the apostles. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Two words are used by the disciple 
or by the apostle here to describe the, the verbal testimony of not only him, but the other apostles. He said, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Stock gives good insight into this double emphasis on the proclamation of the truth concerning Christ when he said, if the word rendered testify is the word of experience, the word rendered proclaim indicates the authority of commission. The experience is personal. The commission is derived. In order to proclaim, they must have received a commission from him. And in fact, if there is a difference to be seen between the two words used to describe John's proclamation of Jesus Christ in his gospel, it is that the first word emphasizes the content of the gospel, while the second word emphasizes the results of the gospel when it is proclaimed. We testify, that's the content, and proclaim, and proclaim goes into not only what is voiced, but the result of what is voiced. And the apostles were unique in history. Theirs was the testimony of eyewitnesses. But that does not mean that you and I are not to bear witness or testimony for Christ as well. Again, one author said, his privileged life in the presence of the Lord Christ was not a private experience to elevate him above others who were not so blessed as if he were somehow one of God's favorite sons. Rather, his privilege became the platform for his responsibility and mandate as an apostle and eyewitness to bear witness or testify of the truth and to proclaim the gift of eternal life in Christ to those, including his readers, who had never seen Jesus. Our privilege is the platform for our responsibility. We're greatly privileged here. We're greatly privileged to hear the truth of the Word of God. We're greatly privileged to have in our hands the Word of God that we can read. If you were to, if you were to come to our house and look at my library and start counting, you would count Bible after Bible after Bible. I've I, I really kind of lost track. For Christmas this year, my wife was wondering, well, what, what do you want for Christmas? I don't need anything per se. I said, well, and I don't know how many of you have heard about the Legacy Standard Bible, which is kind of an updating of the New American Standard that came out. I said, I'd like to have one of those. So guess what I got for Christmas? I got a brand new Bible. There's nothing greater than the Word of God. Because the Word of God reveals God to us. It points us to Christ. We have privilege We think about a new year, and we're always encouraged to do things in a new year, like try to read your Bible every day and, and things like that, and, and those are fine. 
But do we take for granted the privilege that it is to hold in our hands God's revelation to us? Revelation that points us to the only hope for salvation that anyone has, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're true privileged. We, we are, are privileged to have the Word. And we're privileged to be able to cry out if we know Christ, Abba, Father. And we have been commissioned from God. And so you understand. And I want this phrase, hopefully, to kind of stick with all of us. When Jesus is truly worshipped, He will be best proclaimed. When Jesus is truly worshipped, He will be best proclaimed. John exhorts us to an understanding of who Jesus is so that we might teach others about Him. Worship Him. Learn of Him. Witness of Him. Let us be controlled in our worship and work by the Spirit of God whom Jesus said, or of whom Jesus said, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, said Christ, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. The Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Let that be true of you and me as well. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we fail to glorify You. I fear that's all too often. All too often in my own life, I fear that You are not glorified as You should be. Forgive our failures. And help us, Lord, to through Your Word and the ministry of Your Spirit to us to learn of Christ. To worship Christ. To be able to proclaim Him properly to every man, woman, and child. We pray, Lord, that You'll bless this church body. Direct it through the year to come. And may all that's done here be worshipful, for you are worthy of all praise and glory and honor.